ultimately, we thank you for loving us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys give it up for Dana Carr. Thank you. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, It is a joy to be here this morning and a joy to bring the word. And um, we are going to push through because there's always a lot of good stuff that I think the Lord has for us to hear on a Sunday. Um, So today we're going to talk a little bit about Luke chapter 14. And so in the book of Luke, uh, big picture, Luke is one of Jesus's disciples. When he writes this letter, he spends a lot of time talking about the kingdom of God and in particular really flipping what we expect the kingdom of God is or what the people at that time did, right? And so he talks about that the gospel is good news for the poor. And the poor is an umbrella term, right? When you go back to the original, it's not just talking about folks who are broke, right? It certainly talks about the financial poor, But in that larger umbrella uh, falls folks who are disabled, people who are sick, women, children, folks who have made really poor life choices and are paying the consequences for that, right? And so as Luke writes his letter, a lot of it is focused on this group of folks, which is very different than what the religious leaders of that day were talking about. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we push into scripture and as we talk about the table because the parable we're going to talk about today talks about who, who's invited to the table, who gets to come and be a part, who do we welcome in, who do we allow to welcome us, right? We're not always the ones who invite. Sometimes we've got to accept that invitation. Um, so we're going to talk about that a little bit. As I was preparing, I've thought about some of the tables that I've sat at over the years and the really funny situations that happen, <laughs> um, the good tables, the bad tables, right? I've been invited into places that I earned a seat, right? I had to work hard to get a seat at that table and have my voice heard. And then I've ended up at some tables that I did not earn my way in, right? Have you ever been there? You look around and think, why, why do I have a space here? But all right. <laughs> I've been in some dinners with people that got real tense and real uncomfortable. And then I've been in some where you see a friend from years ago and it's like you never left off right? The table is the center for all those things. I I thought about um, Maddie and I went to Thailand a few years ago and we ate dinner at this place that the second we walked across the doorway, it was like, Lord, thank you, Jesus, that my doctor wrote me a prescription for restaurants like this. I know I'm going to need it, (laughs) right? And then I've sat in restaurants only a time or two so fancy that it feels incredibly uncomfortable. Again, why am I here, right? So we have all these experiences that happen around the table, but at the root, there's, there's something there, right? Relationship happens, or we see the lack of relationship, right? And, and we see all the things that come out of that. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to jump into scripture, but I want to pray real quick. So bow with me, and we'll pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for today. Thank you for your goodness to us. God, we thank you that you are always with us, and that never changes. Lord, you never change. Your love for us is steadfast and constant. Lord, regardless of where we are or what we do, it doesn't change the fact that we are created in your image and that you love us dearly. And so I pray as we enter scripture today, Lord, that we would hear that well. God, that you would, um, God, that, that my words would be your words, Lord. You would speak a clear word to us today and you would tune our ears to hear you well. Uh, So Father, we just thank you for meeting us here and look forward to what you have for us today. Amen. All right, so we're going to flip to Luke 14 if you have it, or you can look at the screen, and it will conveniently be there for you. 
So um, Luke chapter 14, we'll start with verse one. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. Now, this is one of those tense dinners, right? Jesus is invited into the home of a prominent Pharisee. So the Pharisees are the the religious elite, right? They're the theologians of the day, the protectors of scripture and, and law, religious law. They're the ones who are there to say, this is the way we do it. And you got, you got to do it, right? And, so, and Jesus is a little radical to them, right? They don't know what to do with this guy. And so he's been invited to this dinner, not just in a room full of Pharisees, but also in the home of a prominent one, right? And so right off the bat, he comes in and everybody's just looking at him, watching to see what he's going to do, right? And he asks them questions. And what do they do? They sit there and look at him. How much more uncomfortable can a meal get that you're trying to make conversation and people don't say anything? Now, there are some folks who suggest that this whole thing was a setup, right? Because Jesus is in this home of a prominent Pharisee with the religious elite, and a man who is super sick just happens to come by. Now, maybe that was normal, but some folks have said, "Eh, it's very possible that somebody lined this up because they wanted to test Jesus, right? And Jesus tries to put it back. What should I do? And they don't say anything. So Jesus, being the compassionate one that he is, embraces the man and heals him, sends him on his way, right? And flips it right back to them. Because he knows for, the, for them to have a meal on the Sabbath, on the Sabbath you can't work, right? For this meal to have happened, they would have had to cook it the day before. So the Pharisees are certainly following the letter of the law, And here comes a man. Now, is it work to heal somebody? It's debatable. But Jesus pulls an example that would have been familiar to them. If your baby is walking along and falls in a well, you're going to let that kid drown because it's the Sabbath? Or even less important, if your cow falls in, that's money. Are you going to let that cow drown? There are exceptions made to that in Sabbath law, right? And so Jesus poses that, but they just sit there, kind of let it be. Now, the next section, we're going to move in, we're going to keep moving through. I think that this tension is important, though, as we look at what Jesus continues to talk about in this passage. So verse 7, um, when, when he noticed how, okay, so this is, so we've had this uncomfortable, uncomfortable situation. Jesus is kind of sitting there. He's looking around, right, taking stock of the room. Who's here? right? Where are they? We know that the Pharisees are the elite, right? They've got some pride. They're known for their arrogance, right? They're not necessarily the the most friendly folks um, around to folks who come in. So verse 7, when he noticed how the guests, the Pharisees, picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important seat in the place. 
But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place, and then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, what I thought about with this, especially in the context of a wedding, is I feel like this is almost a little bit like rolling up to a wedding where maybe it's your friend from high school, right? You know him from a while ago, and you cruise right up and sit at the bridal party table. You're like, yeah, I'm ready for this reception. I'm getting front row seat. Somebody's got to come tell you to move, right? And you hope maybe they tell you when nobody else is looking, but this is, these guys are all, everybody's walking in the door feeling like they are the best one in the room. And so they're pushing to get the best seats. And it may sound like, well, Jesus is just offering a helpful tip, right? Tips from Jesus. Don't get humiliated at a party, right? But he's really setting them up for the lesson to come. So in verse 12, Jesus turns his attention from the whole party to the host, Right, this is the prominent Pharisee who invited everybody in. So Jesus says to him, hey, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the, resurrection of, at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, when I envision this dinner, I'm not seeing a lot of the blind, the crippled, the lame, and the poor there. Right? I don't think that's who the Pharisee invited. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't be saying that, right? He would be saying, good job bringing in all these folks. He's given a correction, right? And giving some direction for the future. So, obviously, they're not there, but also... I don't think the Pharisee was setting out to host a charity dinner. It doesn't sound like that was his purpose. So what is Jesus really getting at here? Now, the next verse we have, um, you ever heard of a Jesus juke, right? When somebody jumps in, they got the right answer. You know, whatever the question is in Sunday school, Jesus, and you know you got it right, right? So they're sitting at this dinner. Jesus is giving these parables, and they're listening, and evaluating, you know, are there some things he's teaching that are good? Are there some things that maybe this is not, maybe it's heresy, right? Um, and so one of the Pharisees, I like to call old boy over here. So old boy is listening and he says, I got it, right? Jesus is always talking about multiple things. It's not simple speech. So old boy says, oh, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God, verse 15, Right? So old boy has figured it out. He's like, Jesus isn't just talking about who should come to the next dinner that you host. He's talking about the great feast. Isaiah prophesied when the Messiah comes, there will be a great banquet. And who did they envision were going to sit around that banquet table? Themselves, right? The chosen people. They didn't see all these other folks that Jesus was talking about. So while old boy got it, I don't know that he fully got it yet, right? He pointed it out. And certainly the other Pharisees there would have been thinking about it, right? When you hear the great feast, when you host a banquet, their ears are perking up, right? What's the Old Testament teaching that this is connected to? They wouldn't have called it Old Testament, but you know what I mean. And so they know not to take it at face value. They know that this is talking about, talking about the great feast. But Jesus' narrative is really uncomfortable, Right? Why would he be talking about bringing all these folks into the feast at the end? 
And so Jesus really doubles down on this in the next parable because we don't always get it the first time. Pharisees don't always get it the first time, right? So verse 16, Jesus replied, a certain man was, and notice he didn't say good job. Good job, buddy, you got it. Like you, you got the moral of the story. There's a little more here. So Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go see it. Please excuse me. Still another said, uh, or another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Now the servant came back and reported this to his master, and the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Now, as I think about this, I have a few first impressions. The first is that that man has some terrible friends. They all backed out. Like, I'm glad you got some cows and you want to go ride Bessie or see how she does chewing up the field. But this is a party, right? Like, you've, you've had the invitation, and at face value, they seem like, okay, like, I mean, I make fun of Bessie, but really, they seem like decent excuses, right? You've just bought some property, you need to attend to that. You've bought new, new ox for your business, oxen, you need to go. You got married, wifey's important, you need to be home, right? Like, these are serious things. And Sabbath law did allow, especially in the case of marriage, back out of everything for a whole year and establish your home, right? But here's the thing, is that, in this day and age, it wasn't just a small party. So the way a feast like this would have been handled is an invitation goes out far ahead. And the exact time isn't given, but the date is. And so, you know, block that off on your calendar. And so when the time comes, the servants go out, just like this one did, and invites everybody in. And so they knew. And so for everybody to cancel, it's not an inconvenience. It's a direct offense, right? This is highly insulting. So I thought about that. My other, the other first impression I had is, now, if this is a bigger parable, right, and it's a kingdom story, why is it that the poor, umbrella term poor, are the second rung invites, right? Like, if that's who Jesus is really talking about, why didn't they get the first invite? I thought about, I, I had a friend who, um, she definitely had strings of friends, right? Like she had tears. And we didn't all realize it in the beginning, but it became clear after a while. And so she planned a vacation one time and she invited all of her best friends. And all of us who apparently were second string friends, she was very excited to tell us, I'm going on vacation and I've invited my best friends. And it was really awkward because it was like, oh, we thought we were your best friends. We do life together every day. <laughs> And then all of her best friends backed out or turned her down. And she had to come to the second string friends, right? And it was like, nope, not going to go on vacation with you. 
you made me feel real bad, (laughs) right? And so when I was reading this, I was like, well, Lord, are these your second string invites? Because your chosen people aren't coming, you're turning to the poor. But here's the thing. God's not surprised by anything. He's never surprised. And so he knew that that invitation was going to be declined and there's a lesson in it, right? It's not to make the poor feel bad, It's to bring some sobriety to those folks who have so much pride and arrogance that they think they're always going to be first, right? We have this idea that that the the Jewish elite brought that they were the chosen people, well, and they were the chosen people, right? But like that they were always going to be first and that it was exclusive. It was exclusive to them. And when Jesus comes, he blasts that door wide open, right? And so in the invitation to the poor, umbrella term that also comes to include the invitation to sinners and to the Gentiles, right? And Paul really presses into that a lot later, but that's not just Paul's idea, right? (laughs) We trust that he's teaching the teaching of Jesus. And so we see that here. Now there's a, um, so there's this guy, Thomas Keating, who is an old Catholic, he's passed away now, uh, but he's a Cistercian monk. So he's a Catholic monk and he wrote a great book on the parables and talks a little bit more about this idea of rejection and, and who's going to be at the banquet and, and all that. So I'm going to read it to you real quick. In the Messianic banquet foreseen by Isaiah, so this is the prophecy, right? This is what the, the Pharisees are thinking. God raises the oppressed people to God's own status and destroys all their enemies. That sounds nice, doesn't it? But in Jesus' parable, the householder does not raise up the oppressed, but joins them in their various forms of human misery. Instead of a vindictive triumph over Israel's enemies, the bottom line is that the kingdom of God, as Jesus proclaims it, is being celebrated with the destitute and with sinners. In other words, the kingdom is to be found not in a dinner for the rich and famous, but in table fellowship with the poor with people of no account, and with those who hang out on the street corners. These are the people who, in fact, finally take part in the dinner. In this remarkable parable, Jesus opens a window on the nature of his Father. The celebration of the salvation of God, symbolized by the dinner, is not taking place with the big shots. With the well-to-do and the successful, they declined. But it's taking place with the poor, the weak, the ignorant, the oppressed, and those afflicted with physical, emotional, and spiritual pain. That is in soup kitchens, bread lines, poor neighborhoods, and in places where nobody wants to go. That's the place of the kingdom, right? We love this idea of a superhero Jesus who swoops in and puts us on his back and flies us up to glory. But that's not what happened, right? When Jesus came, he chose not to live as the king that he was, but to live among us, right? And when you look at who he spent his time with, we have the gift at this point, the Pharisees didn't have, we have the gift of being able to see the whole canon of scripture, right? To look and see who did Jesus consistently spend his time with? Who did he lift up in value, right? He spent his time with women of ill account. He spent his time with tax collectors, right? He spent his time with people who were so sick, nobody wanted to touch him. And that never kept him from embrace. Now, if we buy into this idea, right, that, that, 
this is the life that Jesus lived, not just the idea. If we buy into the scripture, right, and we buy into the account of his life, then it begs the question for us, what does this look like? Because I don't know that we're planning big community-wide feasts on a daily basis, right? And so we have seen some community expressions of what this looks like. Um, You see it in um, the old monasteries and abbeys, right? We criticize them sometimes and say, oh, you're just sheltering yourself from the world and staying behind these walls. But there are whole orders that focus on caring for the poor, right? We wouldn't have many of the hospitals that we have in this country if there hadn't been Catholic churches who saw the poor not being medically cared for and created those, right? We see at um, Jean Vignet, Um, created the L'Arche community for people with and without developmental disabilities. And so it's a space where people with vast differences come together and experience relationship and community. He talks about Luke 14 and says it really became real to him as he started to share meals on a daily basis with men who had developmental differences. He says sitting at the same table meant becoming friends with them, creating a family. It was a way of life absolutely opposed to the values of a community. Similarly, there's a community called the Open Door Community that operates in a number of cities. And they focus on caring for and building relationships with folks in prison and folks who are homeless. And so one of their staff made the comment, justice is important, but supper is essential. And one of their coworkers further clarified, without supper... Without love, without table companionship, justice can become a program that we do to other people. I think about, in particular with that, right? We hear this command in Matthew 25. We hear the question of um, how we've met Jesus in disguise, right? Well, when did I see you and, and not know you, right? And it's like, well, when you saw me hungry and you didn't feed me, or when you did see me naked and you clothed me, when I didn't have housing and you offered shelter, right? That those are the ways that we see Jesus. And I think sometimes we can hear that and say, oh, I want to do that, right? And so we go on a mission to find Jesus in disguise. So it's like, I got my peanut butter sandwiches ready. When I see this, uh, this person, I'm going to give them a sandwich and I will have fed Jesus today. But when Jesus gives that, that when that conversation happens in Matthew 25, it's not purely about the food, it's about knowing him, right? And so how do we know people without, without entering into relationship? I think about some of the community meals that happen that are beautiful things and how I think many of our natural choice would be to be in the serving line offering the food rather than sitting at the table, right, and sharing a meal. And, there, and there's a difference, right? There, there's a different one. There's power dynamics at play, right? When you're the one standing behind the, behind the line serving the food, when you're the one with the bottle of soda saying, oh, sorry, you can't have another cup, right? There are power dynamics there. But when we sit and choose to share a meal, we get to know people. We enter into relationship. And in particular, right, if we believe that all people are created in the image of God, which means that all people bear the image of God, if we want to know his fullness, then we've got to know the fullness of his people, Right, which means not just knowing people like us. I think about when we sit at the table, sometimes it can be uncomfortable, right? Making that choice to go to the community meal and not serving, 
But having a seat, <laughs> there are some funny things that can happen, right? You might sit down next to somebody who has a whole lot of assumptions about you. It's probably not any more assumptions than you have about them, but um, they just show it a little more boldly sometimes. <laughs> we might sit next to somebody with a lot of mental illness. I went to food line yesterday, and the man behind me in line was having a whole conversation with himself. And I've seen him around for a few years. Like when he walks down the street, he presents as an as a average person. But when you see all the conversations he has with whatever is around, you know, then there are some things happening, right? And so what do you do when you sit next to a person at a meal who has uncontrollable outbursts, right? How do you manage that? How do you have conversation? How do you, how do you handle it when you sit next to somebody who's angry, right? They are ticked off that you're there or they act like you don't exist, right? So we get in these situations when we choose to be part of community where it's not always going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. I think of... Uh, um, when I first moved into Glenwood, so I lived, um, we lived close enough um, to, that I could walk to school. So I would walk to campus and there was this lady, I don't think her house even exists anymore. I think it got torn down, but we had the same name. Her name also was Dana. And there aren't that many Danas in the world. So we became friends as I walked back and forth to school and she was a sweet lady and um, also had her fair share of issues, and she and her husband had a just a firestorm of a relationship. You know, he was abusive, she was an alcoholic. Maybe he, they probably both were alcoholics. It was just a mess. But um, so some days were good days, some days were bad days. She'd encourage me on my way to school, and so um, she had invited me over for dinner. And so we had talked about it, and finally the day came of like, I want you to, you know, we're we're doing dinner. And so I was really excited, right? It was, a, it was a gift to be invited into her home. And so I got there, and she was three. She wasn't even three sheets to the wind. She was probably ten sheets to the wind. She was very intoxicated, and she was very sad and upset, and something had happened. And so um, I went in and, and sat at her kitchen table, and she's cooking, and she's just crying into this chicken. And, um, you know, and I'm just taken in the situation, Right? Like, Lord, thank you for blessing me with this relationship with a neighbor. And so I look over at the stove, and she's cooking chicken in the pan, and she gets out a can of cream of chicken soup and dumps it on top. But she doesn't thin it out, you know, so it's just like these gloops of big, like, bright yellow. And I was like, oh, Lord. One, that's chunky. <laughs> and two, I don't know that that bone-in chicken is going to cook quick enough that I'm not going to get salmonella today. You know, and she's boo-hooing, and so I was like, okay, this is good, this is good, this is a gift, I want to know Dana. And then I realized the walls around me appear to be moving. And so, and so I look, and it, I mean, it's like thousands of roaches, thousands of all stages of development. So you got mama roaches, you got baby roaches, you got teenage roaches, there's probably some grandma roaches, right? And that's just life, right? Like for her... That wasn't a thing to apologize for or to even note because that's life, right? And, <laughs> and I grew up, I mean, we had the 13 plagues at my house at various points in my childhood. And I was like, okay, with a roach, you know, it is what it is. But um, I was sitting there and I was like, okay, this is a lot, right? Like I might die from chicken poisoning and also um, I hope roaches aren't crawling on me. But there was a sweetness in that moment, right, of Dana chose to share her life with me. And it didn't make the situation comfortable, right? It was uncomfortable. 
And I prayed, Lord, give me an iron stomach, right? Like, I need to be good. (laughs) And he did. Um, But even in the midst of the discomfort was the reality that there was real relationship happening, right? That she had invited me in and that it was truly an honor for me to be invited to her table. That wasn't a thing that was taken lightly. There was no shame in her invite. She was thrilled to have me there. And she accepted me into her whole life, right? into her alcoholism, into her abusive relationship, into the joys of friendship, right? And so there was real communion that happened there. And so I say that to say, one, I don't get it all right, right? Like clearly I was thinking about all kinds of things other than her in that moment. But also the Lord reminded me of her in that moment, right? And I got to know the Lord better through my relationship with Dana, right? I got to understand his compassion and love and goodness for her, which also means it extends to me, right? And so there was just, it was just good in that. Now, I think those kind of relationships and those kind of circumstances come easier for some than others, right? So it's not to say that it's going to be real easy to walk into a diverse community, right? And I'm using diversity on the broadest term, right? Some of us come from marginalized communities, in whatever form. And so when we walk into those spaces, it's like, these are my people, right? You know how to code switch to their language and you can operate there, right? And then sometimes we don't want to go back there. (laughs) So even if that is where we're from, it's really uncomfortable to be back in that space. Present to us in that, right? And then sometimes we've never been there before, Now, some folks could talk to a doorknob, right? Like they make friends with everybody. And so it's going to be all right. But some of us come with some fear and some trepidation. Well, what if my generosity is abused? Or what if this is an unsafe situation? What if I get caught up in something that I was not intending? Right? But we've got to remember that the table we're inviting people to is not our table. It's the banquet table of the Lord. Right? And the table that they're inviting us to is not their table. It's the banquet table of the Lord. Right? And so we come without fear. And it doesn't mean that we don't walk with wisdom. Right? The Lord grants discernment to keep us out of unsafe situations. But we don't live in fear for all of the eight gazillion what-ifs that are out there. Right? We trust that if he's put a relationship in front of us, it's for a purpose. Now, there are a few things. There, so there's, there's this um, old theologian named William Barclay, and people like him and they hate him all at the same time. So he says some wild stuff, right? And so it's worth, I would say, anybody you read, you take with a grain of salt, right? You hold him up to the lens of Scripture. So um, he's one of those guys, right? He says some stuff that's like, woohoo, you're out there. But then some of it has some real truth. And so he talks a little bit about some of the reasons that we give, Right? And when I say give here, I'm thinking we give of our time and of ourselves. We give of our table, right? And so I think these are helpful to think through. So the first thing he talks about is that a person may give out of a sense of duty, right? And um, there's this little poem. He dropped a penny in the plate and meekly raised his eyes, glad the week's rent was duly paid for mansions in the skies, Right, This idea that when I choose to enter into this relationship, when I choose to give, I'm earning my way a little bit more into God's grace. But God doesn't say we have to earn our way into his grace, right? It is freely given. 
And so if we're entering into these spaces out of a sense of duty, we've got to check ourselves, right? The second thing he mentions is that a person may give out of self-interest, right? They see their gift as another entry in this ledger that the Lord has. Now, I grew up in a tradition that spent a lot of time talking about the crown you will receive in glory and that the more and more and more good works you do, you get more jewels in your crown, Right, and so there, and, and there's some, you know, there's some scriptural reference that that goes to, but there's there was this idea that like who's going to have the biggest crown, right? Like it was a competition, and Barclay calls this rationalized selfishness because out of love, we're doing it because we want to win, right? We want some accolades. The third thing that he mentions is that sometimes we give, we show up out of a sense of superiority. We feel like we know better and we do better. And so we want to tell other people how to know better and do better. So while we might invite somebody to the table, we're really um, holding them hostage to tell them all the things that they need to fix, right? To tell them about their life. And not only is that inappropriate, it's cruel, honestly, right? To pull somebody in and assert that authority rather than entering into relationship. It's smug, it's rude. It's not a place that we want to be, right? But the last thing that he says that I think is really helpful. So the fourth way that a person may give, he says a man may give because he cannot help it. That is the only real way to give. The law of the kingdom is this, that if a man gives to gain reward, he will receive no reward. But if a man gives with no thought of reward, his reward is certain. The only real giving is that which is the uncontrollable outflow of love. God gave because he so loved the world and so, much we, so must we. Now, how can we give out of the uncontrollable outflow of love if we don't know somebody? There is no uncontrollable outflow. But when we choose to enter into relationship, we get to know them. Right? And so I think that there's this great opportunity, this great call to not cop out on how we love others. There are good things we can do that truly are beneficial but can serve as a personal cop out. Right? So when we choose to just give money and never be involved, do nonprofits need your money? Yes. Please be generous givers. Does the church need your money? Yes. Please be generous givers. Right? But when we give with no other investment, I would say that's a cop-out. And we can't be involved in everything, right? So don't hear me say that. There are places we give that we can't be involved. But there are places that we should be. When we settle for thoughts and prayers, right? There's jokes about that these days. And prayers are powerful, right? They are powerful. And so I would say, on one hand, prayer is never a cop-out, because prayer is so vitally important. But how much more powerful is our prayer when we know the people we are praying for and when we know the situations we're praying for, when we choose to step into those areas of hurt, right, and pain, when we choose to enter into that with, and pray, right, we feel the pain of the people that we have entered into relationship with, and it's a deeper level of reality, and so I think we have this space where we get to choose, right? It's a great invitation of Christ. Come to the banquet table, but it's not just you who's going to be there. 
And so if you're going to be a good guest, you're going to welcome the other people who are there. You're going to enter into relationship. You're going to love them well. And you're going to allow yourself to be loved well. Right? We are not the, the bringers of the good news ourselves. We need to receive it just as much. And that good news is going to come from some incredibly unlikely places. Incredibly unlikely. If we're ready to hear it. And so I think as people of God, we're called to love and we're called to welcome, right? And so we host tables of the kingdom of God in our homes sometimes. We do in the calf sometimes. We do at work sometimes. But ultimately, our hearts are part of the banquet table of the Lord, right? We are able to enter people into our lives. And so while there's space, we eat a whole lot of meals a week, right? Invite somebody to eat a meal with you. That's an easy thing. The harder thing is to choose to invite somebody into your life for the long haul, right? And to say, we're going to do life together as hard as it is because I need you and you need me, right? Like there's a sense of togetherness that if I'm going to know the fullness of the Lord, then I've got to know you too. And not just I have to know you, but I want to, right? If you don't hear anything else, hear that. It's not the duty that we have to know other people so we could get to know the Lord, But man, what a joy it is when we get to know people from so many different places and so many different backgrounds and with so many different ideas, our lives become so much richer, so much richer. So that's my prayer for us today. Um, I'm going to close us in prayer and then we're going to move on with our day. All right. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you, Father, for today. We thank you for um, your presence. God, we do thank you for for all the people around us every day. Lord, all the spaces that they come from, the things that they've experienced, um, Lord, the the cultures that they embody. We pray that you would give us the confidence and um, the desire and the excitement to get to know you in all your forms. Lord, would you help us to do that with humility and with a heart centered on you? Lord, and would you just show up abundantly in those relationships? Lord, may we remember that that banquet table is not just for us and settle, Lord, but be compelled and excited to bring other people to it. So we thank you, Father. We love you in your name. Amen. Dana, this morning. You guys give it up for Dana this morning.